Welcome to the Commune Podcast. My name is Jeff Krasnow. Today on the show, we hear the courageous story of Marley Liss and her pursuit of restorative justice. This episode originally aired on December 17th, 2019. In general, our modern judicial system is based on crime and punishment. This is based on Old Testament style retributive justice you know, an eye for an eye. We focus our energy on the perpetrator and the appropriate punishment to fit the crime. This is completely understandable as we want to hold the perpetrator to account. At the same time, this approach seldom focuses on the harm that was actually done. This approach, as you will hear, wasn't working for Marley who was the victim of sexual assault. She pursued a different course known as restorative justice, an approach to justice that seeks to repair harm by providing an opportunity for those harmed and those who take responsibility for the harm to communicate about and address their needs in the aftermath of a crime. So this episode chronicles her story. As a warning, this production contains material of a highly sensitive nature, including sexual assault that may be triggering for some individuals. Okay, without further delay, here's Marley Liss. I live in Toronto. I have just founded an organization called Free Humanize. It's a nonprofit focused on restorative justice for sexual violence, which of course ties into my story. Um, I also do uh, transformational retreats, run alongside my mom, and I'm a writer. Hmm. And can you um, elaborate a little bit on the journey that has taken you into this present incarnation of yourself? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think the biggest catalyst of transformation in my life was experiencing sexual assault um, about three years ago. I had been living on a, a meditation center for the Divine Feminine for three months, and I got home and a week after that, um, I was raped by a stranger and alcohol involved. It was roughly a four hour assault. And um, it was it was undeniably non-consensual. Um, sent me into a deep, deep, deep depression, went through PTSD and just so much grief. Eventually I was, you know, teetering on the edge of life, just kind of got to this place where I wasn't sure I wanted to continue living. Um, and I started going through the the court process. And when I had reported, it's a really key moment in my journey that I was given the choice to either report or not. And I wanted something in the realm of justice. So I chose to report. And um, that led me towards like a three-year uh, conventional punitive track of the system. I went to um, preliminary court. I took the stand for five hours. 
I left kind of being like, you know, who's really on trial here? Um, there was just so much, so much questions and skepticism and everything. And um, eventually when I got subpoenaed for a criminal trial, I had just done so much deep inner healing work and so much learning in terms of of rape culture and patriarchy and intergenerational trauma that it just became really clear to me that the punitive outcome was not something I wanted. What I really wanted was what I learned was restorative justice. Hmm. Um, yeah. And what, what would you say um, going back to that time that wasn't working for you within con the conventional justice system? And, and I guess more specifically, like what were you as the human that was being harmed looking for? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I never ever found in the criminal justice system that my voice was honored or even listened to or even consulted with. It was like, hey, you consented to this whole process um, in a state of shock like three years ago. So now you have to proceed with this system. Um, that's very re-traumatizing. And that's like looking at, at my situation. And then in terms of my perpetrator, my assailant, um, I just, I just didn't believe that either incarceration or acquittal would be the thing that would change him. And what was really important to me was that he was transformed, like was that he wouldn't do this again, that he would learn, that he would like develop such deep empathy that he could feel into the harm he caused. And like, I really believe that just feeling into that alone would be a huge catalyst for transformation. Mm. I mean, I guess my question would be, how were you just not so angry that all you could think about was retribution or, or revenge? And is that part of just kind of the work that you have done as a human, you know, prior to the assault or, or maybe after the assault? Um, I'm just curious how you were able to sort of transcend, I, I guess I would say that sort of, I don't know, more animal instinct for eye for an eye. Yeah, I think it's a combination of a few of the things you mentioned. Like I was doing so much healing work at the time, and that's because it sort of got to it like a life or death situation where it was like if I didn't go to therapy and find yoga and learn adult meditation and breath work, and eventually I met this incredible indigenous elder, and I began assisting on her women's retreats. Um, and I just learned so much from all those different communities about, you know, about trauma being like rooted in something much bigger than our individual selves. And I think what happened for me was I realized, like, I was like, you know, it's not actually my assailant. It's not a hundred percent my assailant alone that has caused this pain in my life. It's a whole system and a whole culture, and it's something that we've been justifying for so long that eventually it it led him to be able to justify that. But I just saw like the root of it being like, 
you know, I don't, I don't think violation happens from someone just being a bad seed. Like, I don't really believe that anyone is just born a bad seed. That's, that's my belief. Um, but it's like, what, yeah, like what I started asking, what happened between the time a baby was born and a perpetrator was made? And it made me question larger systems. Right. I suppose uh, that takes a lot of grace to move beyond oneself in that regard and to have that that kind of compassion. When, um, when you were looking, and um, I don't assume to know what you were looking for, but what I would imagine you would be looking for is acknowledgement and maybe even an apology <laughs> or some sort of notion mm-hmm. that that it might not happen again. Yeah, that was um, actually like the first thing that came to me. And I think it's interesting in terms of like a need for retaliation. I feel like after the assault, I was so focused on myself and my own healing that I didn't really have a minute to think about what would happen to him. Um yeah, so I think that that shifted things for me, but I said from the very beginning, and I didn't know restorative justice existed until about a year ago, um, but I said at the very beginning, all I want is to sit down with this person, have them look me in the eye and acknowledge me as a human and witness the grief that they caused. I said that like literally from like days after the assault and um, I kind of held it in secret because it, it felt like a delusional dream in contrast to how the system is. So I didn't, I didn't really um, make the effort for it to actually happen until I learned that restorative justice existed. I'm curious to know um, how you discovered it. And clearly, like, you discovered it because conventional justice was just not working for you on some le- on many levels, as you've described. Um, and, um, and that it, it just was not addressing... Um, and, and I heard, you know, you talk about this in, in videos and on your website about there's this almost kind of like mechanistic component to traditional, conventional, kind of middle agist justice of, of like script reading almost um, that seemed like so dehumanizing. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, you talk about that beautifully. Um, so I'm, I'm curious, like, how did, how did this notion of restorative justice come to you? Um, because it's, it's not something that I, I see out in the popular zeitgeist, though. I hope you change that. Hmm, thank you. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> um, yeah, I think it is done way more commonly than we're aware of. Um, definitely not for sexual assault much yet. Um, but yeah, like in other countries, in New Zealand, it's like done very frequently and it's, it's incredibly successful so much of the time. And I know my experience was so successful. Yeah. How did I find out about it? Um, basically, 
when I got subpoenaed for the criminal trial, I was so fed up with the system. And I was just like, it's, it's so traumatizing to take the stand and to just be questioned about these like deeply invasive and like horribly intimate things. Um, and to be met with like disbelief and skepticism, it's just like the least trauma informed thing, ironically in the world. Um, so I was like not excited to be subpoenaed and I said that, you know, I'm probably going to just drop the charges. Um, but that still felt like so off in my body. And I remember before I decided to drop them, I told one friend, um, I told her, I was like, you know, if it were my world, this is what it would be. It would be like, a, like we would sit down and I described that vision where we just like, you know, have a conversation and are humans about it all. Um, and she said, so make it happen. And I just had never considered it. Like it just felt so far off from what I knew reality to be that I was like, I just hadn't thought of that. And, um, it sparked such, it was such a catalyst for me when she said that. And um, it, it made me realize I had met a woman while I was traveling in Europe and she lives in Germany. And she had mentioned to me once that they, they do some alternative things to punitive justice over there. And so I reached out to her and said, um, can you help me? And she said, look up restorative justice. Um, at that point, I literally posted in my Instagram story <laughs> saying, does anyone know anything about restorative justice? And um, someone answered and was like, check out this organization. And then that organization connected me with a lawyer who specializes in this. And um, we just called a meeting with the prosecutor about a month before my trial was supposed to happen. And I think we caught them like quite off guard. <laughs> and it was uh, an interesting kind of there was a lot of pushback, for sure. Yeah, as there is to anything that's new and different, I suppose. Um, yeah. And, and what was happening with your assailant at this juncture? I assume he was going kind of through this kind of parallel process um, as well. Mm-hmm. Um. I mean, I know that now because now I've had the chance to like meet him in this eight hour circle that we eventually met in. Um, but at the time, I didn't know anything. And I think that's another interesting aspect of criminal justice is that the victim and the perpetrator are kept as far away from each other as possible, which, you know, makes sense for safety but it also prevents a lot of those needs that victims have. And I know that I had in terms of like asking certain questions, witnessing remorse, um, hearing accountability or an apology, right? And just won't ever happen with the criminal justice system. Yeah. But you managed to convince the, um, the justice system to see it your way. So I'm, what did that actually look like? I mean, what happened? <laughs> it was an, it was an interesting process for sure. And, um, I know so much more about it now. I think it was almost beneficial that I was quite ignorant about how revolutionary what I was asking for was. Right. Um, cause I was pretty like 
and casual about it in a way. Um, but I just, yeah, so we, we called a meeting with them and we came in and there were um, two prosecutors in the room. And I said, you know, I don't, I don't want to go to trial. This is what I want. Instead, I, I want restorative justice. Um, I want him to get help. I want him to have healing and therapy. Um, and I want us to be able to like sit down like humans and, and heal been broken. And um, the initial response I got was this sort of like, oh, sweetie, like, don't you understand? Rape is bad. And <laughs> I was like, you know, of anyone in, in the room, like, I definitely understand that this, this assault was really bad. <laughs> um, and what I said is, I, I think it's so bad that we have to be considering alternative options because what we're doing is not working. Rates of, of sexual assault are not declining. And we're seeing people either be acquitted or they go to prison and they often come out more violent. And it's just this ongoing cycle of pain and violence. And so, you know, I said my, I said my little speech and um, they kept kind of being like, okay, like, let's just go to trial. Let's just go to trial. And um, basically what happened is, is, there was a one prosecutor who was quite um, against it in terms of rape equals bad, bad equals prison. And um, the other one was so excited that I was proposing something different because she has seen how broken the system is. And she's, she's really seen how painful trials are for survivors as well. So she was like, yes, finally. Um, so there was kind of this back and forth dance for a while of like, okay, like we are either getting a yes or a no. <laughs> um, and we just kind of left the meeting being like, we'll see what happens. Um, my lawyer was like, that was pretty epic. <laughs> I was like, was it? <laughs> and, um, yeah. And then we left and there was maybe like a month period of, of where it kept shifting. Like it's going to happen. It's not going to happen. Um, eventually I got a phone call from my lawyer and actually it was like the night before that I was like, you know, it's really seems like it's not going to happen. And I kept being told, don't get your hopes up. Um, so I was at this point where I was like, I'm, I'm ready to drop the charges if this isn't happening. Like, that's just really clear to me. And um, I sort of let it all go. And that came with a lot of grief. And then the next day, I got a call from my lawyer saying, um, uh, a judge said, yes, we are doing this. And um, your assailant's going to start therapy right away. And eventually, when when it seems that he's ready, when he's ready to take accountability and everything, um, we'll meet in a mediation circle. And it was like the most beautiful moment ever. Like I just broke down into tears. I'm like every sense of hopelessness I had carried with me since the trauma of just like, wow, like this is not the world I thought I lived in. Um, I just felt like so much beyond reassurance, like so much excitement of just like, wow, like I wasn't, I wasn't wrong to like believe in, in love and transformation and, you know, like 
making our dreams a reality. Like I wasn't just like naive and floaty to believe in all that. Um, it, it was like deeply empowering and healing just to get the yes. So I assume that he did then go through therapy and then you met. Can you describe a little bit of that scene meeting Mm -hmm. in the circle and and what happened? Yeah, it's a big question. Um, (laughs) So so he went to therapy for about seven months and... um, he like received training in consent. He learned about how like the patriarchy had had like impacted his life and shaped him and all these things, which is just incredible. Like that that alone, like I, I really already felt like the process had given me so much justice and healing before the meeting even happened. Um so when we did get to the meeting I was really just like, you know, I'm proud of myself for showing up. Like, I'm proud of myself for, like, asking for this. Just, like, it was a really, it was a sense of, like, whatever happens, happens. I've already, like, done what I what I had to do. Um, and yet there was so much healing that happened in that room that I definitely didn't even realize that I needed. Um, basically, we walked in and restorative justice takes a community-oriented approach. So it looks at who has impacted this beyond, by this beyond the victim. So um, my mom was there, my sister was there, um, my lawyer, the prosecutor, who was very supportive, um, my assailant and his friend. And we sat in a circle on chairs with um, a sort of altar in the center. Restorative justice also has indigenous and multi-faith roots so there were some sacred medicines to acknowledge that and uh, there was a beautiful tree in the center and they said this tree represents how all these different unique branches can coexist in one space it was it was so beautiful there was like quotes about courage around the walls um so we came in and they said we ask that you acknowledge every person in the room in a way that feels good for you So that's already a pretty big deal. Um, As much as it was like exactly what I wanted and deeply healing and empowering, it was also very hard. Um, My heart was like racing the whole day and my body was definitely shaking. Um, But yeah, so we sat down and they basically, the two mediators just asked us one question, which was what brought you here today? And we all spoke one at a time. The first time I spoke, I talked for like maybe over an hour. And I just like went so deep into my being and and said like, this is your moment. Like say whatever you have to say, ask whatever you have to ask. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, it was, it was really profound. And, and let me really ask profound. you about that. Like, because obviously, I mean, this is a long time the journey just in time is long and I've got to imagine that you've mulled over in your head hundreds, if not thousands of times, what you might say if you were ever given the opportunity to directly address your assailant. So I'm wondering when it was 
your turn in that circle, did you know what you were going to say? Or was this just essentially like a complete improvisational opening of the heart? I'm, I'm just curious what, what, what you said and what was going through your mind at that point. I think when I started, I was really just focused on like regulating myself. I'm like, okay, like breathe. Yeah. <laughs> um, I was really clear and intent that I did not want to speak from a script. I think that's something I really associated with like court, like being on saying the right thing. And um, this to me was like a really safe and brave space to say anything that came. Um, so I, I feel I did that. Like, I feel I really spoke from, from the present, like with whatever I had to say. Um, there were questions I knew I had been like burning to ask for years of just like, really just like, why, like, why did this happen? Like, what was going on in your head when this happened? You know? Um, so there were, there were things like that, that, that I had in mind. Um, but I remember going just so deeply inwards and like, I remember connecting with the version of myself that, that was just struggling to survive. And I was like, here we are, like, say what you have to say, like show him how hurt you were, you know? And, um, that was really powerful. Like to tell him that I actually like almost took my life from this. Mm -hmm. It it felt very powerful to, to tell him that, to show him that. Yeah. And did you, as you were speaking, did you feel like he was acknowledging what was coming from you? And I assume that he also spoke. Yeah. Yeah, he did. Um, so my biggest fear, I guess, going in was that he would just be like stone, like that he would be like totally unmoved and not present at all. And just like, as if he like just showed up to like get a check mark. Um, that was my biggest fear. And he like really went beyond my, my greatest hopes with that, I guess. Like he was so clearly there and was so willing to be like affected by what we were sharing. Um, I watched him a lot when my mom was speaking too, and like he would just, he would tear up at different points. Um, that was like something about that was deeply meaningful. Like, yes, like, yes, shed tears over this. Like it, that felt powerful. Um, and he was so present with eye contact. And I remember it kind of felt like in theater when you like break the fourth wall, it, I like remember at one point I was like, you know, since this happened, I've been asking all I've wanted is to like sit down and be looked in the eye when I said, when I, speak about this and like that's what's happening right now and I just like named it it was really yeah it was really powerful yeah so eventually it got to him uh he was the last person to speak in the circle we did we went around three rounds but the first was definitely the longest um I guess I'll share even before him um, just a really interesting side note is like the friend that came with him who was really supposed to be there just as a support person um, just broke down sobbing 
was just sobbing and sobbing. And he said to us, he's like, like, I never cry in front of people. Like I was in the military. Like my dad always taught me not to cry, but, but I've never been a part of anything like this. And that was just like, so incredible to witness just like the, the transformation this was having on him. Um, and, and the ripples that that has, um, and so my assailant spoke after that, and yeah, and he started by, he kind of explained his, his narrative in chronological order, and I think that was in response to what I had been asking of just like what was going on. Um, he explained actually that, that he completely repressed what happened after it did, that when I ran out in the morning, he just like locked those memories up. And so he was very confused when he got um, charged about a week later. And that was really hard to hear. Um, I wasn't sure if, if that was going to just be his narrative, like if it was just that. And um, it, I feel like that gave me a glimpse into a criminal trial. And like I describe it as like I turned to stone and cracked and died because I wasn't sure if he was denying it. Um, but eventually he said that what happened was, yeah, so he got charged and he actually felt like he was being wronged because he's like, what's this about? Um, and eventually someone close to him in his life disclosed that they were sexually assaulted and they told him about it. And they kept saying, this is my fault. This is my fault. And he said something along the lines of, it's not your fault. Um, and, and when he said that, he said that all his memories unlocked. And he remembered the whole night. He remembered every detail and how, how non-consensual and how brutal it was. And um, he looked me right in the eyes. And, and I feel like from the depths of him, apologize and said fully said I sexually assaulted you I'm so sorry there's nothing I can do to take it back I hope that being here today can help and um, that's the moment that I'm like I didn't know I even needed that healing as much as I did but I just I just broke down into tears and it was like a knot untying in my stomach it was like very a very very deep release and I was like wow like I I don't know if everyone wants it but part of me like wishes this moment for every survivor you said earlier that what you were looking for is sort of an acknowledgement um from him of your humanity mm -hmm. and and it from your telling of the story it seems like you got that um through through this mm -hmm. restorative process and that that was that it more addressed the harm that was caused to you to your family um i wonder if if you would recommend that system or this alternative approach um, to everyone? 
That's an interesting question. Um, I wouldn't necessarily recommend it to everyone um, just because I don't think justice is like a one size fits all thing. Um, you know, there's, there's certain cases where the person's maybe done this a hundred times and like, there's really potentially not any space for transformation. Um, but I definitely am a huge advocate for this process. I think that survivors have a huge right to know that it exists and to know that there's so many different forms that it can take. Because for some people, they would absolutely not want to sit in a circle with their assailant. But there's other forms of, of writing letters or um, having the person attend therapy still and hearing about their progress. There's so many creative options. And I just think that our world really needs this in terms of like breaking those chains of dehumanization. I, I don't know why we've gotten to a place where we think we can end dehumanization by responding to violence with with dehumanization it just it just doesn't make sense to me and and the clarity of of transformation being possible i just like i'm really holding that and i'm really i'm really got to experience and see firsthand that trauma can be a catalyst for transformation for the victim we know that, like we see so many survivors become activists, like I've done that. Um, but trauma, inflicting trauma can also be a catalyst for transformation, especially with, with sexual assault. Often there, there aren't any physical injuries, often. Um, often it's, it's a broken spirit that we're addressing and um, we're trying to do that without without discussing or leaving any room for spirit or the heart. So it doesn't work. Um, whereas this was so whole and so honest. And um, yeah, I, I feel that like my, this is what my spirit wanted. That was so clear. This was like very much guided by something beyond myself. Um, and yeah, in terms of reassurance of, of will he commit this crime again, um, that's a great question. And, and it's been shown time and time again that um, victims' number one wants are accountability. And second to that is reassurance that the crime won't happen again. Um, that's a big focus of restorative justice. It's all about repair. Um, I feel very, very confident that my assailant will not do this again. I would be like completely shocked if he did this again, just witnessing his level of transformation. Even beyond that, I would like not be surprised to see him become a community leader in preventing violence. And I think for some people that sounds delusional. <laughs> and um, I think to that, I would say we need to uplift our cultural standards of what is possible because transformation is possible. And we've seen so many people become community leaders after, after doing awful things. So 
yeah, I, I, I really got to witness his transformation and it was, it was incredible. Mm. That is amazing. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Let me ask you a question about your mom because you brought her up and you mentioned that she was in the circle that day. Uh, I'm curious how this journey impacted your relationship um, with her. Yeah, um, it impacted our relationship a lot. Um, I think that she had a huge descent after this happened alongside me. Um, this this trauma, and I don't even I'm not, I'm not a mom, and I don't know, <laughs> you know, but but her her love for me is so deep, um, and to just see me hurt in such a way like broke her um and the same way that I began questioning everything in terms of how are we treating each other like this and what does it mean to be a woman in the world and all these things um she also started questioning everything and so this really sparked a a huge awakening for her and um I'm so blessed to have her she became such a pillar for me at this time like I was just falling apart and she was totally this pillar. Um, I was in a state of, of such dissociation that I wouldn't even speak sometimes for like a whole day. Um, but I was writing a lot and I would just kind of slide my poems across the table to communicate where I was at. And she was incredible and she would just, you know, what do you need today? Um, so we got so, so, so close through that. And um, this led her to her own path of healing. Now she's like a Reiki practitioner. Now we lead retreats together for women. Um, but we really shared in this in this descent. And around the same time, we realized like, wow, like we're going to be okay. And when we come out of this hole, we're going to do some epic things together. And uh, we really have. <laughs> we yeah. have fun doing it. And yeah. um now she now we founded this organization together, and she also was in the circle. Like yeah. I don't, I I know not all moms would necessarily be there, um, but she's so strong and so centered in heart. And she sat in the circle and she she voiced her like, "How dare you hurt my baby girl?" And she also voiced her her sense of forgiveness, and I think that's so powerful. Yeah, I want to ask you about that. Um, I, I suppose, just quite simply, like, do you forgive your assailant? Hmm. Um. I think yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I and I always just want to say, like, my I always kind of add this disclaimer. I guess um, I'm not sure why of um, just this clarity of like. Forgiveness is vastly different than justification. And also I feel that forgiveness can coexist with any emotion. I don't think it's like either sadness or forgiveness. Um, I do feel forgiveness. I do feel like very much aware that he's been raised within a culture that has normalized these awful things. And, um, 
I see that that he's changing and I see that he's deeply sorry and um yeah I feel I feel a strong sense of compassion despite everything it's like I I surprise myself when I when I say these words sometimes (laughs) (laughs) that I'm that good that there's that much goodness inside me um (laughs) yeah It seems like one of the lessons of restorative um, justice is that forgiveness itself does not forsake accountability or justice, that you can have both at the same time. Yeah. And that seems like a relatively foreign uh, notion to our conventional kind of crime and punishment approach to, to justice. Um, I'm, uh, I'd love just to kind of talk like a little bit more about like what you're doing now, um, you know, with your mom, um, cause I think, you know, this, it, it's such an incredible story, Marley, like, and, and it's very rare that people can find meaning in their suffering. You know, Victor Frankl mm-hmm. writes about this, and this is a constant theme on the show, um, is that, you know, finding meaning in life, that's kind of what, we need more than anything Mm -hmm. and that it is so hard and sort of so illogical on some level it doesn't sort of square with our rational approach to life that you can find meaning in suffering but 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 you have and so Mm. can you describe a little bit about kind of what you and your mom are doing now Mm -hmm. yeah thank you um yeah, so now we've founded this organization. It was it was really clear to me, um, especially after the circle, that I wanted to make ripples with this. And uh, I actually said during the circle, like, to my assailant, like, this is so much bigger than us. It's so much bigger than us in terms of, like, transforming a whole culture and... Um, you know, just collective healing. Um, so that was really clear. When we left the circle, we were all like pretty much on a high actually, which is amazing because like no one leaves court as far as I know, like joyfully. And by the end of that day, it was like quite a joyful feeling, um, like almost celebration. Like, wow, we did this really hard thing um, and it worked. And so we left and and my mom and I were like, okay, let's, let's take some time to process this emotionally. (laughs) And then we were like, you know, let's, let's make this a foundation. Let's get incorporated. And so now we're a not-for-profit, soon to be a charity, hopefully. And we're focusing on restorative justice for sexual violence. Um, we're taking a survivor-centered approach. So we're asking that people look towards survivors and say, what does this look like to you? What is your dream in terms of justice? And how can we make justice synonymous with healing rather than punishment? And there's a lot of organizations that are doing the how of this work in terms of like actually facilitating these circles. Um, But what we're focused on is communicating the why to the masses, because I think it's such a mind blowing paradigm shifting topic for people that it's, 
it's going to facilitate huge change to just even be like, hey, this is why I did this. And uh, this is what it meant to be. And, and maybe you want to do this too. And, you know, since sharing my story in the media, I've heard from probably thousands of survivors. And of course, I've heard every um, opinion on the spectrum, such as the nature of the internet. Um, but <laughs> I've heard a lot of people say, I wish I could have had this, or how can I have this now? Or, um, you know, it was deeply healing to just even learn that this is an option. Yeah, yeah. Because I guess some of these things are are hard to presage that this might be something that is important to your life until something, I suppose, very difficult and happens. Um, well, I think, you know, doing doing something different always takes a lot of courage. Um, mm-hmm. And... Uh, you're someone that I, that seems not to take no for an answer. And I mean that in the, in the most, um, complimentary way possible. Mm -hmm. Um, I think obviously there's millions of women that can see their story in yours. And that's why I Mm -hmm. think it's so important, not just courageous, but important that you are on the forefront of sharing it um, because it's the storytelling um, that people can empathize with and see their own journey in yours. And so thank you for that. And then thank you for bringing, you know, an alternative approach, um, I hope, into the mainstream because from everything that I've read and from everything that I've heard you talk about, there needs to be a significant place for an approach that is restorative, um, that takes um, the harm of the victim um, and makes that paramount. Um, Mm. So you're very, very brave and I appreciate you deeply and God bless you. Thank you so, so, so much. And thank you for the opportunity to share. Thanks a lot for listening to this episode of the Commune Podcast. If you have any questions, suggestions, criticism, preferably of the constructive variety, I am here at jeffk at onecommune.com. Okay, that's all from the Commune for today. My name is Jeff Krasno, and I am here for you.